Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. It's great to be together. We are going to be continuing in our study of the book of Genesis. Last week, we were in Genesis chapter 23. And quite honestly, it was a really of a bummer week. I mean, uh, Sarah died. And so we ended up spending a sermon talking about death and funerals. Now, I don't like talking about death and funerals. You don't like talking about death and funerals. But it's something that we need to talk about because in this life, there is death and funerals. And because God has an incredibly good sense of humor, I came down on Saturday night with this really nasty chest cold. So the whole time I was talking about death and funerals, I sounded like The Undertaker. I mean, it was just like that. I had a laugh when I got home and I was done. Well, today I want you to tell you we're turning the corner. Things are going to get a little bit exciting. Because while Genesis 23 was about death and funerals, Genesis 24 is about dating and marriage. Now, which of those two would you rather talk about? Obviously, dating and marriage is a much better topic. I mentioned that in Genesis 23, 3 through 25 is a section on in Genesis called the passing of the baton. It's passing the baton of leadership out of Abraham and Sarah's life into the life of their son, Isaac. Last week, Sarah, the matriarch of the family, died. This week, Isaac gets a wife named Rebecca, and we get a new matriarch. So this is pretty cool. Um, now, before we start studying um, dating and marriage and what it says in the Bible about dating and marriage, I need to give you a little bit of the state of our culture when it comes to the way dating and marriage works. And I just have to tell you that in our culture, the way we practice it now, dating and marriage is totally broken. And because you live in this world and you swim in this world, you just do not see how incredibly dysfunctional our world is and how much changes have just taken place in the last hundred years. For instance, uh, how many of you have been on a date? Anybody been on a date? You know, okay. How many like going on a date? Good? Dating? Good? Anybody? Okay, why is like nobody likes their dates? Okay, this is a church. You better be honest, right? Uh, thank you. Thank you, Brandon. Um, here's the deal. I don't know if you realize this, but the word dating was actually introduced into the English language in 1896, and it was lower-class slang for prostitution. And for some people, the way they practice dating, it hasn't moved far from the original meaning of that word. See, dating and what we do with dating and marriage today is so changed from what it used to be. In fact, in the early 1900s, this is the way dating and marriage worked. You had a, a nice eligible daughter, and so you thought, well, I, I would like my eligible daughter to get married. So as a husband and wife, you sat there and you made a list of potential suitors for your daughter. And then you sent them formal letters um, asking if they would come to your house for an interview. This is the way it used to work. And you would interview them in your house in what was called the parlor room. And you can imagine what the questions were like. You're like, okay, uh, tell me about your life. Tell me about your plans for life. Tell me about my, your plans for my daughter in your life. Tell me about your 401k. Is it paid up? You know, where are you at with Jesus? It was like this kind of stuff. 
and you interviewed all these guys, and after uh, they were done, provided they had properly shaven and removed all unnecessary body odors, you know, you considered, you know, who you were going to whittle them down and bring them back for another interview. And eventually, if you really liked one of them, they got to meet your daughter. Now, that sounds sort of prudish, but that is the way it used to happen in the early 1900s. And boy, have things changed. In fact, in 1920, we had the urbanization of America. People moved out of small towns into large cities, and all of a sudden there, were, there was theaters, and there was concerts, and there was restaurants, and young girls would go there with their young men, and they were no longer under the, the watchful eye of their parents. 1930s, the automobile was mass-produced, and young girls were not under the watchful eye of their parents. They were under the long arm of their boyfriend in the car, all alone. Let me fast forward a little bit. 1960s, everything just break loose. And people say, you know, it's called the sexual revolution. We're tired of not being able to express ourselves freely and sexually the way we would like to. And so in 1960, you have all kinds of uh, venereal disease that all of a sudden becomes rampant. You have all kinds of pregnancy that starts going on. It's just a total sexual revolution in the 60s. At the same time in the 1960s, pornography goes mainstream in America with some of the famous magazines that you probably don't know what the names are. They come on at the scene at that time, and all of a sudden, men are not looking for real women. They're looking for fantasy women. And you can see how this is starting to change what dating looks like and what marriage looks like. And so you have all these people in the sexual revolution are getting pregnant out of wedlock, and you have to solve that. And guess what comes along next? The pill. And all of a sudden, women can have sex without worries about getting pregnant. So it leads to more premarital and extramarital sexuality. 1973, legalization of abortion. Now if your pill didn't work, you have a way to get rid of your unwanted child. 1974, uh, no-fault divorce comes in. Because what's happened at this point is since there is so much extramarital sexuality and so much premarital sexuality, uh, marriages aren't really sticking like they should. Marriages are, are falling apart. And now, with no-fault divorce, it's really easy to, to split up and head in your own directions. That was the shift in only 70 years from uh, being interviewed in the parlor under the auspices of your parents to the pill, pornography, abortion, and no-fault divorce. Are you seeing the seismic shift in the relational world that has gone on in our culture? Fast forward to where we're at today and you have the internet. You know, that's like the new way you pick up dates on the internet. In fact, there's 40 million single Americans that use the internet for social media, for, uh, for dating purposes. That is 40% of those who are single use the internet to find dates. And you, it's not just to find dates, but all of a sudden things have gotten really interesting on the internet because there's things like Craigslist and Tinder. And you know what they're about. It's not so you can meet somebody to marry at that point. It's so you can meet somebody so you could just shack up for the moment and then go your own ways and have no relationship with them after that whatsoever. 
This is a seismic, huge shift from the way things were in the early 1900s. You used to have sex that was reserved for marriage. Remember that? And then all of a sudden, well, you could be sexually involved as long as you were engaged. Well, you could be sexually involved as long as you were dating, whatever that means. You could be sexually involved with your friends because then you had friends with benefits. And then you didn't even have to be friends. It was just somebody you hooked up with off Craigslist on the internet. Today, the amount of people who live together has increased since 1960. Live together without marriage has increased 1,000% since 1960. What happens? One-third of all children that are born are born into one-parent homes. <coughs> I'm going to see if I can do this one from memory, but women between the age, all women between the ages of 15 and 44, four, 40% of all women between the ages of 15 and 44 will at some point in their life live with and sleep with a man that they will not be married to. That is a huge seismic shift. And you need to understand that dating and marriage, American style, is not working. And it's a surefire road to end up in heartache and disaster. And unless you buy that, what I'm about to say about dating and marriage God style from Genesis chapter 24 as we study the dating and marriage of Isaac and Rebekah will not make sense to you because you'll think it is so out of touch with reality. Folks, where we're at now is not working. So let's look at the biblical alternative. <coughs> two lessons, two big lessons we need to know. First of all, as we go through this text, you'll see there's a lot of practical pointers on how to be involved in a God-honoring dating and marriage relationship. Just practical, proverbial pointers as we work our way through. Secondly, there's this whole idea of providence. Providence is the big picture lessons from this chapter. And now I'm going to give you a, a little definition of providence. It's in your outline. Um, this is a little bit of a truncated definition because providence obviously involves more than this, but this will be helpful for us. Providence means that when we live faithful to God's Word, God will guide us where He wants us to go and to the people He wants us to meet. God will even guide us to the person He wants us to marry. Let me say it again. Providence means that when we live faithfully to God's Word, God will guide us where He wants us to go to the people He wants us to meet, and God will even guide us to the people He wants us to marry. So let me just, uh, just give you the first two points here. My job, live faithful to God in my dating and marriage, rela in marriage relationship and honor God and pursue Him. What's God's job? To order my life so I'm at the right places and I meet the right people and to bring into my life the person He wants to be my spouse. We do our job, he does his. So let's jump into the text here, and we're going to take a look at this. <coughs> First point we see in the text, only date and marry a believer. The first four verses. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh. 
that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Let's start with the really weird part first. Why does he say, like, put your hand under my thigh? Like, why would you want you, somebody to put their hand in a place where the sun don't shine? Oh, what's going on here? You study this in, in, in the Hebrew and what the rabbis are talking about here. They're actually saying, it's, it's not saying touch your thigh. It's a little further in than your, fly, your, your thigh. It's saying touch a very private section of this man. Now, why is he saying that? Apparently, in this culture, when you are making a, uh, like a rock-solid commitment to somebody, this is where you put your hand when you made that commitment. Uh, now, I think that it would be pretty interesting because if you did that, obviously, it would be a commitment that you could not forget. It would be a commitment you wish you could forget, but you wouldn't be able to forget, like, oh, I can still remember that, Ugh. Now, I prefer the way we do it. Guys, we make a commitment to one another, we just shake hands, right? Yeah, I think it was an improvement over time on that one. So, but that's what's going on here. He's making for a really rock-solid commitment to him on this. Abraham is old. He's going to die soon. He, his job as a father is to arrange the marriage of his son. Isaac is about 40 years old at this time. By the way, uh, for some of you wondered... Could there actually be a 40-year-old single man who has not exploded? Here we find one. You know, you can actually be a single guy at 40 and, and still survive. Isaac is one. The problem is that they live in Canaan. And all they have in Canaan are these Canaanite girls. These Canaanite girls do not love Jesus. They do not love God. They, in fact... We learn this from our study of Leviticus. The Canaanites are extremely sexually promiscuous. They're very ungodly. Um, not the kind of girls that Isaac needs to marry. So Isaac is a bachelor. And he is every Canaanite girl's dream. But he stays single. He stays single up to the point of 40 years old because he says, I am only going to date and I am only going to marry a girl who loves the one true God of the universe. Now, I think there is uh, something we can just apply right here to us. Only date and only marry a believer. That means you may have to wait a long time. Isaac was 40 years old. But you know what they say? Better to be single and wish you were married than to be married and wish you were single. And so this idea of is, is God's people only date and marry others in the Lord actually carries forward way beyond Genesis chapter 24. We'll see in Genesis chapter 28 when it comes time for Jacob to marry. They send him all the way back to Abraham's people to find a godly girl. When he comes to the New Testament... We find 1 Corinthians 7.39 says this, You can marry anybody, but they have to be, quote, in the Lord. In other words, another believer. It also says in 2 Corinthians 6.14-18, through 18, it says, Do not be unequally yoked together. That if you're going to get married, make sure you're equally yoked to another believer. 
So as Christians, you only date and you only marry a believer. And some of you people who are single are looking at me and saying, well, I sort of agree with that, but I sort of don't. I agree. Only marry a believer. But, Pastor, only date a believer? I mean, come on. Get with it. Okay, I'm going to have fun with you singles right now. Uh, those who are married, I have a little audience response question. How many of you that are married ended up marrying the person you were dating? Anybody? Like, everybody. Oh. So this means that you end up marrying a person you date. Hmm, interesting thing there. Another question for the married couples here. How many of you found yourself more... Um, romantically attracted the longer you dated. In other words, you were starting to think more with your hormones than with your head over time. This is church. Be on, you, okay, yeah, thank you. Okay, and it better be every man in this room, right? That's the way it works. So the idea is the more time you spend dating a person, the more you become attached to that person, the more you romantically bond to that person, the more you want to marry that person. That's just usually what happens. See, today young people think dating is a recreational activity, like watching sports. I don't know what to do with myself. I'm going to watch football. I don't know what to do with myself. I'm going to go on a date just to give myself something to do. Dating is not a recreational activity. The purpose of dating is to see if somebody is a potential marriage partner. And if there is no way a person could be your potential marriage partner, then there is no reason to possibly ever date them. That's just the way it works. So if somebody is not a Christian, they're not going to be a marriage partner, so you just do not go on a date with them. You don't say, this is the way I'm going to pass my time. I guarantee you, Isaac would not be a 40-year-old single bachelor if he dated Canaanite women just to pass the time. Because he would have married one of them along the way. That's why he stayed away. Next thing to tell you. Never, 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 ever, ever, never, ever get sexually involved with someone that you're not married to. Was I clear? You, you don't get sexually involved whatsoever. In fact, sex, the Bible says, all of it is to be reserved for marriage. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2 says this, Young men treat younger women like sisters with absolute purity. So what are you supposed to be doing with the girl that you're dating? Nothing more than you would do with your sister. Guys, how many of you would make out with your sister? I hope not. She'd smack you. How many of you would do anything like that with your sister? Nobody. Then don't do it with your girlfriend. Save sex for your wedding is what the Scripture says. In fact, the Bible is very clear that when you are married, you better be very sexually active with your spouse. But before your marriage, you are not sexually active with anybody else. Now, I know 
um, some of you think I'm just totally out of touch with this and that I'm preaching like a prude. I am not out of touch with culture, guys. I know what the culture is like. I know what our culture says. I know what the movies say. I was, I was young once. I'm sort of old now, but, but the, here's the simple point. The person who's out of touch is not me, from what I'm saying. The person who's out of touch is you. You're out of touch with God, and you're out of touch with God's Word. God's Word says in 1 Timothy 5, verse 2, treat the younger women like sisters with absolute purity. Period. Done. End of discussion. And the reason why God says this is not because He hates you. It's not because He's trying to ruin your life. It's because He loves you dearly and passionately, and He wants to protect you and make your life the best it possibly can. If I saw you with your hand down here and you were going to take a hammer and you're going to smack it on something and you didn't realize, but you were going to smack your hand with all your strength with a hammer, I would stop you. I'm like, don't hurt yourself. Don't destroy yourself. It's just going to be so much pain. I would stop you. God says, I love you. Don't hurt yourself, except you're not going to hurt your hand when you get sexually involved with someone that you're not married to. You're going to hurt something much more sensitive your heart. You're going to cause incredible amounts of pain and damage in your life. And he says, don't do it. I care about you. Now, that was the first point. Only date and only marry a believer. Second point is this. Men need to go where godly Christian women are found. Go to where godly Christian women are found. Um, God apparently was not bringing godly Christian women into the Canaanite land. So, Abraham says, we better take the initiative. We better go look for them. In fact, I know where they're found. They're found back at my family, which is, by the way, is a 450-mile trip back to Ur. It's a long time. Now, we don't even like 450-mile trips in a car with bucket seats and air conditioning. I mean, for these guys, it's on the back of a camel in the desert. This is a huge sacrifice to get there. Men, single men, you need to go where godly Christian women can be found. Where do you find them? I'll tell you one thing. We're not at the bar. If you want to marry an alcoholic, that's the best place to go find one. They're not at zippers. They're not at bogey nights. They're not on the ice during winter games, usually. Where are single Christian women found, the kind that you want to marry? Church. They should be, and they will be in church. Here's why. Because a godly Christian girl will be in church loving people, serving people, caring for people. She loves God. She loves His people. She loves His house. So she will be found here. So, godly men, men, you go looking for godly girls in church. Now, ladies, let me talk to you about your job. Here is your job. You think your culture tells you that your job is to hunt down the men. Your job is not to hunt down men. Guys should be hunting you down. Your job as a godly Christian woman is to bloom where you are planted. What that means is you're in church You want to serve. 
You want to be involved in Awana giving back and helping kids. You want to be involved in the coffee bar helping people. You want to be a, a greeter. You want to be um, giving and making meals. You want to be actively involved, not hiding yourself, but energetically, outgoing, enthusiastically serving others, actively loving others. And here's what happens. The godly Christian guy comes into church, and he says, I wish I could find a godly Christian girl. But then all of a sudden, there's that girl. I saw her helping at the coffee bar. And then, wasn't she over there bringing a meal to somebody? And wasn't she over there helping in the library? And wasn't she? I see her everywhere. She is so giving and kind. That's the kind of girl I want to meet. You see how that works, ladies? You want to make yourself attractive? Serve and love. You will stick out to the godly Christian guys and catch his eye. You will get noticed. Now, ladies, some of you in our culture are told that your job is to chase down the guy you want. I would say it's different. If you have to chase down the guy when you're dating him, you'll still have to chase him when you're married to him. His job is to take the initiative and see something in you he loves and admires and chase you. Not just when you're dating, but if he does that when you're dating, he'll keep chasing you when you're married. So, you know, ladies, your job is just to bloom where you're planted, not to chase a mate. Number three, a wife's job is to leave, a wife leaves her life to join her husband, not the other way around. <coughs> Verses five through nine. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Then I must take your son back to the land from which you came. Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. The servant says, you know, okay, I go to find this woman. Uh, what happens if I find this woman, but she is not willing to come back 450 miles to leave her home, to leave her family, to leave her kindred, and to go marry a man she has never met before? What am I supposed to do? Abraham says essentially, well, then keep looking because her job is to leave her life and to join his life. Genesis chapter 3 says, a wife is given to Adam to be his helpmate suitable for him, to leave her life to join his life. Now, some people say to me, does this mean a woman cannot work? No, I didn't say that. The point is that you have to be willing to leave your life, your family, and everything else behind to be able to join your husband and to form a new life together with him. Abraham and Isaac are under God's call that they must stay in this promised land. 
this woman that would be a wife for Isaac must be willing to leave and join in God's call. And if she's not willing, keep looking. And I just say this real practically. Young men, you are looking for a wife and you find a lady you think is the right suitable one for you. And she is not willing to leave her name. She is not willing to leave her life. She is not willing to leave her job to become one with you. If she's not willing to do that, keep looking. Her job is to be your helpmate and your teammate with you together. Number four, pray for your spouse. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he went and he made the camels kneel down outside of the city by the wall of, of water at the time of evening, the time when the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Abraham makes the trip. He he goes out to... Uh, excuse me, Abraham's servant makes the trip and he goes out to Abraham's country and he goes by the well. And Why does he go to the well in the evening? Because that is the Walmart of single women. That's exactly what it is. What happens is in the evening, it's in the evening because it's finally not hot, the young women that are single all come out to the well. They do their little chatty time out there and this is why what they do is they take these uh, water jugs. They're usually about three gallons each. They're not plastic. They're clay, so they're heavy. They let them down into the well. They fill them with water. They bring them up out of the well, and then they carry this heavy jug back to their family in the city. Now, ladies, this is hard work. How many of you like to carry three gallons of milk out of the car at one time? That was in a plastic jug. Try walking multiple miles with a clay jug that held three gallons of water. This is why the young women do it, not the older women. So all these women are coming out, all these great girls, and he's like, oh, no, how do I figure out which one it is? Pray. Pray that, God, you would reveal the right one to me, that I would be able to recognize them. A little practical pointer, especially for single people. Are you praying right now for your future spouse? Are you praying that when God brings them into your life, that you'll be able to recognize them? I prayed for my wife uh, long before I met her. And it was really interesting the way God lined things up. So it was spiritual confirmation as answer to prayer that she was the wife for me. And I've prayed for my wife ever since I have met her. And nowadays I am praying right now for my son's wives and that they would recognize the right woman when they meet her. And I'm praying for my daughter's husband. Don't know who he is, but I'm praying that she would recognize it when she meets him 
as an answer to my prayer and what I hope is always her prayer. But look at this. He says, pray, but how does he pray? What will we notice? She'll be an answer to the prayer, not because what we're going to do is get all these women together and we're going to put them into a house with Isaac and we're gonna, he's going to give away roses every week, you know? We're going to call it The Bachelor. No, do it that way, no. Let me recognize one woman of incredible, godly, humble, servanthood character that would literally be off the charts. If I see a woman like that, then I'll know that's the one for Isaac. Now, let me explain to you how this works. A woman, he says, that when I ask for a drink, would volunteer on her own initiative not just to let me drink some water, but to water my camels. Remember, the jar is about three, three gallons. It's a lot of work to let the gar, jar down into the well, to pull the jar up out of the well. But a woman who would voluntarily water my camels, each camel drinks 30 to 50 gallons of water. He has 10 camels. This is a woman who would voluntarily draw five, 300 to 500 gallons of water for a complete stranger simply to be kind to him and to be nice to him because he was tired of traveling on the road. Unprecedented kindness and character. That is what he is looking for. Now, guys, if you met a woman like that, would you snatch her up in a heartbeat if you were a single man? Amen. He says amen. I would say amen too. It means she would be extraordinary because women like that are rare. Next point. Remember that beauty is appreciated, but it's not what is most important. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. The servant ran to meet her and said, Oh, please give me a little water to drink from your jar, pretty please. She said, Oh, drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, You know, and I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all of his camels. It's like a two-hour process. The man gazed at her in silence. A woman like this actually exists <laughs> to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey. Amazing character. Incredible compassion. Incredible initiative. You notice how she runs to all these things? She's like runs as she does this. But here's the bonus. He wasn't praying for looks, but the bonus round is she has those looks. She is a Hebrew hottie. That's literally what she is. She is a virgin whom no man has ever known. Every man would like to be with her, but she has saved herself for the wedding day. Guys, most of you go, I am looking for a beautiful woman. And that is what your criteria is. That is not to be your first criteria. 
you are to look for a woman of amazing kindness, amazing service, amazing energy, amazing initiative, character first. Beauty is a bonus. Beauty is appreciated. But beauty can never come before character because beauty can never replace character. Fifty years down the road, I guarantee you, she could be Miss America, but beauty has seriously faded. But if she is a woman of amazing character and integrity and kindness and godliness and initiative, fifty years down the road, that beauty will remain and it will even get better because it will be seen through your, her children, through her family, through her home, Everything she touches will have become beautiful and attractive through her character. Now, guys, let me, just, let, me, let me just say this. Is there anything wrong with being attractive? Absolutely not. Is there anything wrong with going to the gym and trying to look your best and to be your best for your husband? Absolutely not. In fact, your husband would greatly appreciate it. But beauty cannot trump character. And if you have beauty but you have no character, it all adds up to zero. Some of you are going to get offended right here. So I'm just going to get ready. You can get offended, get excited about getting offended, but this is the way I picture Rebecca. You guys ever go to the checkout lines and you have those muscle and fitness magazines? You know, you have like this buff guy who has muscles out of his ears hanging out there, and always next to him is this really buff and strong girl. That is what I picture Rebecca. I mean, she does have amazing character, and she's amazing kindness and amazing energy, but she's incredibly beautiful, and she is incredibly strong, and she is a hard worker. You don't see her whining. You don't see her complaining. 300 to 500 gallons of water she pulls up from this well. I mean... I picture her is she probably went to the local YMCA and she was in CrossFit. She probably led the class like a Hebrew version of CrossFit because she is buff and she is strong. and She's not a complainer. Now, what would the Canaanite women have been like? I don't know, but I'm picturing it this way. The Canaanite women would have been like, oh, that rope is causing a callus on my hand. I just can't do it. I think I've chipped the nail. And oh no, I'm starting to glisten and sweat. It's going to ruin my hairstyle. That would be the Canaanite women. Rebecca, I don't care. Somebody needs help. I'm going to serve. And Abraham's servant says, that's the one. That's the rare kind of woman and character I'm talking about. If she can draw 300 to 500 gallons of water for 10 camels, trust me, she'll have no problem getting Isaac's cup of coffee in the morning. It'll just work. But notice she came in answer to his prayer. Number six, the faith question is always the first question. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, well, please tell me whose daughter you are. And is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, Well, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. And she added, Oh, by the way, we have plenty of straw and fodder and room to spend the night. So add to her character qualities hospitality. She's pretty good at it. 
The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, (coughs) the Lord has led me, and you see the providence here, in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran, see the energy she has, and told her mother's household about these things. She may be a woman of incredible character. She may be a woman of outstanding beauty. She may be a woman who's incredibly buff and strong and energetic. But if she doesn't pass the faith test, it adds up to a complete zero. So the first question is, whose daughter are you? In other words, like, are you somebody who really loves God? Now, we're going to see as we go forward, a little bit later, that she is a great woman of faith. And she passes the faith test with, in spades. But let me just point out to you here just something practical. Single guys, I know how this goes. You're looking for a woman. You see a girl. And you say, well, I'm always told the first question should be the Jesus question. So you say, um, do you know Jesus? And the girl goes, oh, oh yeah, I, I know about Jesus. You're like, okay. Move on. Next question. We're done. Check. She, she, she's a Christian. She can say the word Jesus. Guys, roofers say the word Jesus when they hit their finger with the hammer. Doesn't mean you can marry them. Demons can say Jesus. Doesn't mean you're going to marry them. You need somebody a little higher up the spiritual food chain than somebody who can simply say Jesus. This is what I'm talking about. The deal is, you are looking for a woman who will be a spiritual encouragement for you. You are looking for a woman who knows Jesus and who's passionate about Jesus. And when you are down, can quote scripture for you. When you are (coughs) trying to think of what the right verse is, can say, it comes to my mind, and I can tell you what it is. And most importantly, you need to realize that you will most likely not be the one who is the primary spiritual input into your children's life. Your wife will be, because she is their mother. And if all she can do is say the word Jesus, those kids aren't going to grow to know Jesus and love Jesus when she can't tell them much about Jesus. What you are looking for is a woman who is passionately in love with Jesus. So she raises her children to be little zealots for the God of the universe. That's what you're looking for. Not just somebody who can say the name of Jesus. This is why the faith test is the first test. Number seven. (coughs) Providence is guidance. Now, I'm not going to actually read this whole text because it's a long piece of text, but I'm just going to tell you essentially what happens here. Before they even sit down for dinner, Abraham's servant comes along and says, guys, let me tell you this story. And he retells this whole story about how we're looking for a wife for Isaac. We can't seem to find one. So we go to where the godly women are. We've prayed about this. I even prayed, he says, that God would reveal to me a woman of incredible character who would even voluntarily water my camels. And as I prayed that, Rebecca turned around and did this. Incredible. And so what happens, let me pick up at the very end of the text, oh, about seven verses up from the bottom, it says this, 
Then I bowed my head and worshiped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for his son. Now then, if you are going to show me steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. If not, tell me, that I may turn to the right or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord. <coughs> we cannot speak to you good or bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Essentially, they say, you know what? It is so clear that God has ordered circumstances, that he has spoken, that she is the right one to be Isaac's wife. Everybody agrees, and they haven't even set, started eating dinner yet. It is so obvious. Years ago, I wrote in the front of my Bible this little phrase. And this is one phrase I want you to keep and memorize. Put it in your Bible or put it in your heart. Providence is guidance. Providence is guidance. And what this means is that God, as we choose to obey Him and follow Him, He will order our life in such a way that He directs us to the places He wants us to go and to the people He wants us to meet, and He'll even direct us to the right person for us to marry, just like He did for Isaac and Rebekah. Let me give you an idea how this works in practical realms of life. Eight years ago, I came to Crosswinds, and I preached a candidating sermon. I remember that. At the time, I was uh, interviewing at a couple of other churches, trying to figure out where I should go. I, I preached a candidating sermon. You guys might remember this. If you hear a long time ago, we went down to the picnic area, and the church had a picnic, and they voted, and they offered to extend to me the job to be the senior pastor. And I remember Pastor Greg, who was here at the time, said, I know you're going to probably want to take, you know, a couple days or maybe a week or so to pray about this and see if this is where God wants you to go. And I said the most unspiritual thing. It's like, I don't have to pray about it. Yes, I'm going to take the job. And Greg looked at me and he's like, are you supposed to be like a pastor and pray about these things? And I was like, I've been praying and fasting every day about this for the last nine months. There are multiple churches that we are in the candidating process for. But I've been praying that, God, you would make it very clear as to which one I'm to be at. And we had to move out of our house. And we had absolutely no place to go. But there was only one church where the process moved forward to such a way that I was candidating and interviewing and they offered me the job at the right time. It was Crosswinds. Providence is guidance. The way God orders things in life is how He directs us where He wants us to go. So I didn't have to pray about it because there was only one place at the right time. It was here. This is the same way God works when it comes to getting a mate. Dating and marriage, American style, it's something that is pretty broken. It ends up in heartache. It ends up in disaster. But dating and marriage, God style, God has your best interest at heart. He wants to protect you from incredible amounts of hurt. 
And he wants you to be in a marriage, in a dating relationship that is honoring to him and glorifying to him. And he promises that when you honor him and you walk with him, he will take the responsibility to lead you to the right time and to the right person and even to the person that you are to marry. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for the real practical, uh, just little dating tips and just practical proverbial truths that are found in this passage. But I especially thank you for what comes screaming out of this text is your sovereignty over our everyday practical life. And I thank you that you put us as we walk with you to the right places and the right people. And for those who are single here, I thank you that as they follow you, you will bring them to the right person that they are to marry. And it will be done in such a way that is very clear to them that this person is an answer to their prayers. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.